up to yonder, beyond the lights, neon, uh, fluorescent, my essence is something to ponder, uh, your talent ain't something to squander, uh, blessed and favored so high, me, anointed and pointed I might be, this is that all that podcast featuring Kyrie. Welcome back, we are back um, with a part two, this is, this is my, actually, my first part two to a conversation wow. that I've had on this podcast. Honored. So you're a first, Garrett. Thank you. Really, it's a, a part three, considering. Yeah, that, considering the fact that we had to scrap them. That's true. Never posted. That's true. Secret episode. That is that is a good point. This is actually a part three. But, um, yeah, so the conversation that we had, uh, you know, concerning liberal racism uh, or, you know, "Quote unquote nice racism," as uh, Robin DiAngelo coined it, um, is such a vast topic and something that you know it's kind of difficult to fully express um, through just an hour. So we had to come do a part two, and also I text Garrett and I was like, "Man, I am so excited for this part two because I'm reading this book called Cast by." Isabel Wilkerson, and uh, she had these these things and these ideas in this book that kind of changed my perspective, and that I thought could uh, change the perspective of a lot of uh, people out there. Because I'm pretty sure people will hear our first conversation, and they are you know there will be people that uh, kind of say I'm not racist, you know, even right. from the conversation we had. But this book kind of uh, puts things in perspective um, to kind of understand why even, quote unquote, people who would call themselves nice um, are still in this system of racism. And after I finish reading, you can call it a system of casteism. When you think of a caste society, usually people think of India or Nazi Germany. But through this book, you learn quickly that America has a caste system also, so um, I'm going to read this passage, a couple of passages, actually. So the first part of this conversation will be me uh, reading uh, from this book that everybody should read called Cast. It should be required reading. So let's get to it. So she says, what is the difference between racism and casteism? Because caste and race are interwoven in America, it can be hard to separate the two. Any action or institution that mocks harms, assumes, or attaches inferiority or stereotype on the basis of the social construct of race can be considered racism. Any action or structure that seeks to limit, hold back, or put someone in a de defined ranking seeks to keep someone in their place by elevating or denigrating that person on the basis of their perceived category can be seen as casteism. Casteism is the investment in keeping the hierarchy as it is in order to maintain your own ranking, advantage, privilege, or to elevate yourself above others or keep others beneath you. For those in the marginalized caste, caste system can mean seeking to keep those on your disfavored rung from gaining on you to carry the favor and remain in the good graces of the dominant caste, all of which serve to keep the structure intact. In the United States, racism and casteism frequently occur at the same time, or, or overlap or figure into the same scenario. Casteism 
is about positioning and restricting those position. Uh, is it visa visa? Is that how you pronounce it? Visa vis. Yeah. Others. What race and its precursor racism do extraordinarily extraordinarily well is to confuse and distract from the underlying structural and more powerful Sith Lord of caste. Like the cast on a broken arm, like the cast in the play, a caste system holds everyone in a fixed place. For this reason, many people, and this is our, what our conversation is about, including those we might see as kind and good people, could be castists, meaning invested in keeping the hierarchy as it is, are content are content to do anything or to do nothing to change it but not racist in the classical sense, not active and openly hateful of this or that group. Actual racists, actual haters would be, uh, by definition, castists, as their hatred demands that those they perceive as beneath them know and keep their place in the hierarchy. In everyday terms, it is not racism that prompts a white shopper in a clothing store to go up to a random black or brown person who is also shopping and to ask for a sweater in a different size or for a white guest at a party to ask a black or brown person who is also a guest to fetch them a drink, as happened to Barack Obama as a state senator or even perhaps a judge to sentence a subordinate caste person for an offense for which a dominant caste person might not even be charged. It is caste or rather the policing of an adherence to the caste system. It is the Unconscious, reflexive, reflexive response to expectations from a thousand uh, imaging inputs and neurological societal downloads that affix people to certain roles based upon what they look like and what they historically have been assigned to or the characteristics and uh, what they historically have been assigned to. Oh, no, I read that again. Or the characteristics and stereotypes by which they have been categorized. No ethnic or racial category is immune to the messaging we all receive about the hierarchy and thus no one escapes its consequences. What some people call racism could be seen as merely one manifestation of the degree to which we have internalized the larger American caste system, a measure of how people, of how much we ascribe to it and how deeply we uphold it, act upon it, and enforce it, often unconsciously, in our daily lives. I'm going to read that last part again because she says how deeply we uphold it, act upon it, and enforce it often unconsciously in our daily lives. We assume that the woman is not equipped to lead the meeting or the company or the country or that a person of color or an immigrant cannot be the one in authority. It's not a resident of a certain community, could not have attended a particular school or deserved to be attended a particular school. When we feel a pang of shock and resentment, a personal wounding, a sense of unfairness, and perhaps even shame at our discomfort upon seeing someone from a marginalized group in a job or car or house or college or appointment more prestigious than we have been led to expect. When we assume that the senior citizens should be playing cards rather than developing software, we are reflecting the person. Uh, no, we are we are reflecting the efficient encoding of caste, the subconscious recognition that the person has stepped out of his or her assumed place in our society. We are responding to our embedded instructions of what, of who should be where and who should be doing what, the breaching of the structure and boundaries that are all hallmarks of caste. Race and caste are not the cause and do not account for every poor outcome or unpleasant encounter, but caste becomes a factor to whatever degree in interactions and decisions across gender, ethnicity, race, immigrant status, sexual orientation, age, or religion 
that have consequences in our everyday lives and the policies that affect our country and beyond. It may not be as all assuming as its targets may perceive it to be, but neither is it in the ancient relic, the long ago anarchies, the post-racialist, post-haters of everything keep wishing away. It's invisibility is what gives it power and longevity. Cast, along with its faithful servant race, is an X factor in most any American equation and any answer one might ever come up with to address our current challenges is flawed without it. When I read that, it just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> because before and often we, we have these conversations and this book so far, I haven't even finished it yet, is letting me know that our conversations are so are not digging deeper in, enough into uh, the structure of this country. So, what do you? What were your thoughts about what I just read? Um, no notes. Perfect. Let's shut it down. Let's yeah. get out of here. <laughs> uh, easy day for me. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of good points there, um, mm -hmm. especially related to the first conversation we had, because I think I mentioned to you before, it, it's not even something like I, as someone who tries to be conscious about this stuff, um, thinks about that much because generally my focus is always on material conditions and right you know government actions that have specifically disenfranchised people that will you know result in the wealth gap we have today and anything just related to material conditions of different groups of people today um but i mean it, it clearly another part of the puzzle and um it reminds me of the uh the tweet i sent you the other day where it was like a thread of black people listing their experiences working at Google right. or other big tech companies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, many of the stories were, you know, riding his bike across the, the Google campus <laughs> and somebody reported him saying there was somebody that shouldn't have been on campus. Or, right. And that speaks to what she described as seeing somebody right. outside of the context that or seeing somebody outside of the image that you had in your mind of where they of where they should be right yeah. and i think the relevant thing there is you know when we talk about racism the reason that this is such a big problem or as i guess you and robin d'angelo may agree maybe mm -hmm. um racism that affects black americans today or does more damage than um more outright overt uh, racism is because it's probably not that often that you know black people are going to interact with KKK members or yeah. true you know white supremacist yeah. right. just psychos um, whereas you know every day at work or at school or anywhere you're going to be interacting with normal people who view races or racism as black and white good and evil and so they may have this software kind of operating mm -hmm. you know uh, this this cast is software um, operating underneath the surface that they're not really aware of, and so they have no idea what uh, impacts that's having, what they're projecting onto others, right? Um, you know, without without being aware, right? And another reason I love this book is because the way she frames some well, what the way she frames um, people wanting to hold on to status. You know what I mean? She even put in the book how 
you know, a lot of uh, people that would be grouped in the under the term white uh, because it's not, you know, white is not a real thing. It's just an idea of being white. So you had, you know, the Irish who were the black people where they came from, you know, the lower, the, the lower caste. Right. Um, where they came from, you had Irish people, you had all uh, Italians, you had all these people coming over here. Uh, and everybody was trying to get into the dominant ca caste, so they wanted to be um, considered what is known to be white. You know what I mean? So, and I love how she, she painted that to show how people would do anything just to hold on to that status. Speaking of the Irish people that I was just speaking about who, where they came from, they experienced some of the things, uh, as far as being the lower class, um, that African Americans experienced here in America. But when they started coming over to America, they saw, okay, in order for me to rise to the dominant caste, I have to treat these people just like the dominant caste treat them. And so it's like you lose all sense of uh, perspective um, just to fit into uh, this cast. So I, th I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it does remind me of, it was some lecture, and I think a comedian said something too, and it was just like mm -hmm. asking all the white people in the room, it's like, how many of you would be like perfectly okay if you woke up tomorrow and you were black? And it was just like, you, you can immediately like just thinking about yeah. that chris rock chris yeah. rock said this. okay yeah no not I that i don't know if he said he said something to that degree but he yeah. was like there's not a white person in this room that would switch places with me right and i'm rich right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah yeah so that <laughs> that kind of um yeah makes it more glaringly obvious like what you mm -hmm. don't want to see or think about um and i i think there is some of that working in everybody uh that we don't want to talk about um like even even those of us that are aware like mm -hmm. yeah we're living on land that was like stolen from indigenous people and you know this especially like in the south like most of the country is built up through slavery mm -hmm. and through um you know specific legal like government incentives that mm -hmm. created this this white middle class and white upper class that very specifically left black people out, you know, through the land grants and right. um, GI Bill. I mean, we could talk for hours about it as we did on the first podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but I think behind that, you know, even people that understand that, it's, they say, okay, that's true, but I have it now. Yeah. And I don't want to give it back. Right. And so, and I'm, I feel that way. Like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. So it's. Uh, exactly. So I'm going to read another uh, passage in this uh, section of the book is called the evil of silence you know for a lot of black people and myself included you know we form these relationships with white people and something happens and you hear nothing it's kind of like discouraging it was you know because we would want you to speak up in in in, in those situations and you know now with all this, you know, police brutality going on, you know, and that stuff was like really popping. And when you, you know, George Floyd, and so when you're on social media, 
and you see some of the things that people are saying, like I said in the first episode that we did, it's kind of like, whoa. So, and again, she's going to frame this. Uh, actually, I'm going to read a couple because she did a lot. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm going to read two. I'm going to read two. Um, and she shows how, you know, people are just more concerned with being comfortable at the end of the day, pretty much, in the, in yeah. the dominant cast. So she says, in the middle of Main Street in a southern American town, there stood a majestic old tree, an elm or an oak or a sycamore that had been planted before modern roads were paved. It held a sacred place in the hearts of the townspeople, though it was an altogether inconvenient location for a shade tree. It blocked traffic coming and going, and motorists were forced to curve around it to get through town. It was the potential cause of many accidents, given that motorists could not always see past it or know for sure what had the right of way. And yet it cannot be cut down. It was the local lynching tree, and it was performing its duty to perpetually and eternally remind the black townspeople of who among them had last been hanged from its limbs and who could be next. The tree was awaiting its appointed hour, and the white townspeople were willing to risk inconvenience, injury, and death, even to themselves, to keep the tree and the subordinate caste in their places. The tree bore silent witness to black citizens of their eternal lot, and in doing so, it whispered reassurances to the dominant caste of theirs. The craziest line out of this is, the white townspeople were willing to risk inconvenience, injury, and death, even to themselves, to keep the tree and the subordinate cast in their places. So hold on, are you thinking of something? Sub hold on, I'm gonna read the second one, right. which is crazy. You know what I mean? And, and, it, and in the second one, it really brings home just how the level of evil, you know, because most, I think in some people's psyche, you know, they say, oh, you know, slave masters were bad. Some people, you know, they can see that. But everyday people, were horrible, you know, right. at this time. And people don't think like that. So, okay, here. The little girls appear to be in grade school in light cotton dresses with a sailor's collar and their hair cut in precise page boys just below their ears. In the picture, the two younger girls seem to be fidgeting in shadow close to the women in the group who were perhaps, perhaps their mothers or aunts. The girl you notice first, though, looks to be about 10 years old, positioned at the front of the group of grown-ups and children, her eyes alert and riveted. A man is at her side, Chris, in his tailored white pants, white shirt, and white Panama hat, as if headed to cocktail hour at a boating party, his arms folded, face at rest, unperturbed, vaguely bored. It is June 19th, 1935. They are all standing at the base of a tree in the pine woods of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Above them hangs the limp body of Reuben Stacy, his overalls torn and bloodied, riddled with bullets, his hands cuffed in front of him, Head snapped from the lynching rope, killed for frightening a white woman. The girl in the front is looking up at the dead black man with wonderment rather than horror. A smile of excitement on her face as if show ponies had just galloped past her at the circus. The fascination on her face set against the gruesome nature of the gathering was captured by a photographer and is among the most widely circulated of all lynching photographs of 20th century America. Lynchings were part, were part carnival, part torture chamber, and attracted, attracted thousands of onlookers who collectively became accomplices um, to public murder. 
Photographs were tipped off in advance and installed portable printing presses at the lynching sites to sell to lynchers and onlookers like photographs at a prom. They made postcards out of the gelatin prints for people to send to their loved ones. People mailed postcards of the severed, half-burned head of Will James atop a pole in Illinois in 1907. They sent postcards of burned torsos that looked like the petrified victims of... Um, not even going to try to pronounce that. Only these horrors had come at the hands of human beings in modern times. Some people framed the lynching photographs with locks of the victim's hair under glass if they had been able to secure any. One spectator wrote on the back of his postcard from Waco, Texas in 1916, this is the barbecue we had last night. My, my picture is to the left with the cross over it, your son, Joe. This was singularly American. Now, people, listen to what I'm about to read. Even the Nazis did not stoop to selling souvenirs of Auschwitz, wrote Time magazine many years later. Lynching postcards were so common, a form of communication in the turn of the 20th century, America, that lynching scenes became a burgeoning sub-department of the postcard industry. By 1908, the trade had grown so large and the practice of sending postcards featuring the victims of mob murderers had become so repugnant that the U.S. Postmaster General banned the cards from the mails. But the new edict did not stop Americans from sharing their lynching exploits. From then on, they merrily put the postcards in an envelope. That was 1935 when those stories happened. My great-grandfather was born in 1935. My great-grandmother was born in 1940, and she's still alive right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So well, it's just... Yeah. Um, <laughs> what strikes me is just the mentioning the Nazis. Uh, yeah. At the end of that is mm-hmm. in you know pre not nineteen thirties Germany. Right. Uh, the Nazi Party around the conversations they were having around the government that they were creating the society they wanted to build is they took a lot of notes from the way the American government treated. This black is in this book. It, okay. Yes. There you go. And so <laughs> I, I'm sure I've read that. I heard it on a podcast mm-hmm. at some point. And and they didn't even go as far. No, they did. I remember as one of the America big debates did. was should interracial marriage be illegal? Right. Which it was in the United States. Yes, she talks about this book in this book in sure. about half the states. Right. And so yes, you know, again we. We view, yes, the Nazis were bad guys. We mm-hmm. were good guys. We came and liberated um, Europe. But, you know, at the time, at that time, interracial marriage was um, it's illegal a way, in something like half the states. Yes, so. it's a way to uphold casteism. The class. Yeah. It's a, it, the caste. Yes. You know what I mean? It's a way to uphold that caste. Yeah. So, in reading this... It, we can have this conversation um, about, uh, which I said is one of the keys in the first episode, is education. Like, it's, it's, if you're serious about the work and you read something like this, it's going to affect you. But the problem is most people, most white people, don't know these things. Me, I'm black, and I'm still learning things. You know what I mean? Like, I just learned about you know the nice the Nazis studying America yeah. on how to control the Jews right. like they literally studied America right. and if you talk to a lot of Americans you know Nazi Germany was like it was just horrible they speak of it as horrible but wait you know we, you have all this patriots I'm not saying you should be patriotic but you have this view of America that's so great but the people that you're condemning studied America 
Right. So we can, you know, talk about education. And uh, I just saw this tweet. It was like, the reason I, I, I know I screenshot it. I'm going to get it. Uh, you can say your thoughts in the space. meantime, but uh, I'll find it. Okay. Yeah, you go ahead. Yeah. Look. Um, <laughs> and I, I think we talked about this last time, too. I think part of that is, uh, especially like conservatives, but white people in general, you know, kind mm -hmm. of view themselves as racially neutral. Like right. They don't. Whether they they think that or not, it's kind of a subconscious feeling, and so mm -hmm. we don't feel like we participate in identity politics in the way that you know liberals do, or you know black or Hispanic or indigenous Americans. Um, so we don't see ourselves as doing that. Um, but mm -hmm. one of the things I've noticed recently on Twitter is um, like conservative Americans posting clips of like. You know, Australia is in some intense lockdown again for COVID. And so mm -hmm. videos of, like, police being, like, very aggressive towards people not wearing masks. And they're like, can you believe this fascism? This is this is totalitarianism. <laughs> yeah. And, like, to it's me, you know, right? these are the same people because I, it made me want to comp I, I don't get involved in anything yeah. on Twitter because it's just a mess. But it made me want to comment, like, wait, let's see the whole video first. Wait, why didn't they just comply? Right. You know? It's, it was like, exactly. where is all that? Why aren't you backing the blue? Like, right. Um. And it's because in that situation, mm -hmm. they see their identity. They see themselves as, right. I don't, I'm an anti-masker or anti-vaxxer or right. w whatever it is. So they see that affecting them. And mm -hmm. so that is their identity politics then expressing itself. Exactly. Um, but it's, just, it's, it's so hard to bend the mirror enough mm -hmm. to, so they see their face in it. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I'm going to take a break right quick because I really got to pee. Okay. <laughs> I drink a lot of water. Wait, right back. I'll be right back. All right. <laughs> you want me to keep talking, or you get to pause the? I mean, you got All right. All right. So the tweet was I found it. The tweet was the number one reason why America never learns from its history is because America, America, never teaches its real history. So, and you think about Germany, and how they've been able to to progress, it's because they did a lot of work um to understand and they were very upfront about the history they tore down nazi monuments and i think that's the reason that they've been able to kind of get past their history is because they did the work i mean and pay reparations you know <laughs> right so yeah. i think that's something that america could really learn from <laughs> that, yeah and we talked about that on the first one too yeah um because, yeah, it's not like anyone has the impression that you can be forgiven for something like mm -hmm. the Holocaust or slavery. No, it's about what can we, we what mm -hmm. can we fix going forward to, you know, create the society we want to live in. And so, yeah, Germany did a full mea culpa denazification of its country right. um, and paid reparations, mm -hmm. importantly. And, and um, that's something that, yeah, our country never really went through, say, with, like, the Confederacy. I mean, flying the Confederate flag was still a big issue a few years ago. Yeah. And, you know, maybe just by luck of my parents or where I grew up, that never made any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I definitely, like, learned, like, yes, the Confederacy were, like, the bad guys in the story. And so, right. Um, it is strange to see this, like, attachment to that symbol still, like, mm -hmm. in so much of the South. Right. Um, but I, f I forget uh, the track we were on earlier with the conversation. No, I was just uh, viewers. I had to take a restroom break. But um, <laughs> no, we were just basically saying about 
I think we kind of transitioned to the history part, but you know, and, and talking, thinking about the casteism that she's talking about and how people, white people, have a certain perception of what a black man or a black person, period, should where they should be. The story she gave of uh, somebody mistaking at that time Senator Obama as a bartender at a party uh, because to them he's out of place, right? So I think that and that uh, awareness of that for me is the reason why in part this show exists because I could be doing uh, comedy. I'm pretty funny, I think. I could be <laughs> doing a lot of things that... Um, would put me in that in my quote unquote stereotypical lane, right? And so in high school, you know, Al, Al and my friend Al, we were, you know, the two, uh, you know, most popular kids in school. And a large part of that was because of our personality. You know, we, we MC pep rallies, you know, we, you know, to, we entertain everybody, right? right? So when I left, you know, high school and, you know, I went to college and I'm <clears> taking, you know, the African-American studies class. I'm taking a um, a class on the history of, uh, you know, Latina history, Latino history, um, all this in a linguistic anthropology class. And to me, I'm getting real smart, right? So I was <laughs> like, I'm going to, I want to show this side more then I will want to show my comedic side or my entertainer side because, you know, and this could be me overthinking, but this is society, right? You know, but I'm just thinking like, I just want to show something other than what's quote unquote expected of me. Right. Because for the longest time, in order for a black person to, to escape, not fully escape, but kind of escape the casteism of them being the lower class is through entertainment. You know, slaves would make, you know, uh, I mean, slave owners would make slaves, you know, get up and perform no matter how tired they were, no matter, you know, they've been in the, they worked them 18 hours a day, you know, get up and sing, get up and do this. And for the longest, that's how, you know, Jay-Z has a lyric. He says, all us blacks have is sports and entertainment until we even, you know what I mean? Right. So it's like that has been still probably uh, uh, one of the most dominant ways to get out, to get out of the casteism. But even when you do, quote unquote, get out, you're still uh meant to stay in your place i hear a, a lot you know uh about athletes being paid an x amount of money so they need to shut up or you know you got the lebron james shut up and dribble you know laura ingram right. comment and you know and you know, elijah muhammad has this quote that says you know you can never uh get past the conditions of your race barack obama uh, probably the most educated president in history mm -hmm. one of the best orators in history held that office almost not almost just superb as far as no scandals you know a united front with his family and to some people he was nothing more than a nigga right you know what i mean so you know you can never rise above the conditions of your people or as the book would say um your caste yeah and i, I do think that um mm -hmm kind of influences what you talked about, the invisibility of that mm -hmm. caste system is because I, when I grew up, for example, you know, all of the biggest cultural figures that I looked up to were all black Americans. You know, every day when I got home from school, what was on the TV? Oprah. Mm -hmm. You know, who was the biggest athlete? 
Michael Jordan. Um, you know, my favorite actor, who, the best actor, Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tiger Woods, just a singular phenomenon of right. talent. Um, and so, and then, you know, getting into high school, you know, really the first president I had when I started thinking about politics was Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it was like seeing, you know, black faces in high places. And it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, that to me was signal. Yeah, I mean, there, there's racism is over then. Um, and yeah, we don't. They even coined that term when Obama won the post-racial society. Right. And, <laughs> and we don't, you know, we don't think about, okay, what's the actual makeup of, say, like, you know, the C-suite of Fortune 500 companies or the rest of government or, you know, right. the Supreme Court or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Congress. The actual, people are confused what the actual power centers of the country are. And, yeah, Barack Obama, it, it should be really a, you know, a big flag for the opposite case. And mm-hmm. that, as you mentioned, and I, I have, you know, I tried to qualify before. I have so many critiques of, the Obama presidency, but mm-hmm. from from a left position of policy, um, yeah. But just on the aesthetics, I mean, you know, picture perfect, mm-hmm. handsome, Flawless. family, mm-hmm. um, like you know, one of the the most dignified politician maybe I've seen. And in, not only that, lifetime. I don't mean to interrupt you, but not only that, the first lady, Harvard, uh, did she go to Harvard? Yeah, Harvard, right, Princeton. Yeah, VP of a hospital, lawyer, uh, always. Yeah, like always on point. Right. You know who she needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, Barack Obama. You know, one of the better speakers. And then you look who he's sandwiched between. Just mm-hmm. two. I mean, absolute bumbling buffoons. Of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of, of like the, the most obvious kind of. Um, racial inequality that we have mm-hmm. the the most like that's disgusting a great, that's a great point views of mm-hmm. white privilege you know mm-hmm. George Bush just born into a rich political dynasty family Donald Trump you know born with a silver spoon in his mouth and right um, you know both of them just anytime they open their mouth just sound like complete idiots um, you know Donald Trump it, it anytime he opened his mouth could know couldn't couldn't possibly like further prove mm-hmm. how little he knew about anything. I mean, so you, any given time. You're making me think of something. In the book, when you remember when she said about when she was talking about that tree that it resulted in death, right? And uh, she was like, white people would uh, would rather risk injury, risk death, um, in order to uh, still see themselves as the dominant caste. You just made me think of this, right? So Obama was in office. He. In, in my estimation, try to make, for the first time in the country's history, make um, everybody feel like America was theirs. You know what I mean? Right. Or, you know, how you see the people that he brought into the White House and people that would never get the chance to see the White House. Yeah. You know what I mean? He made sure that they got that opportunity. And so... And people hated him for it. it exactly. And you see this, this African-American president, and then you're up against, after, you know, po- the possibility of a female <laughs> being the president mm-hmm. and now the dominant cast is like whoa what about us we're we're about to lose our position in this caste system so what did they do they have this guy trump 
he's speaking their language. He's speaking, hey, if you vote for me, I'm going to make sure you, you, we, you stay in the dominant cast. And they would risk anything just to feel that they were in the dominant cast. So you just made me think of that. Right. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I don't, I'm not letting... Democrats off the hook at all you or should. liberals because right. then that's that's exactly what this know, who, who this did, podcast we just is talking it about up with another bumbling white buffoon who <laughs> has never you know had to earn anything right and you know when you look at that final <laughs> final field of mm -hmm. um, like Democratic candidates in the primary you know it's entirely you know it comes down to at the end of the day mm -hmm. we picked you know another. 70 80 year old white man right. um, who again like did not display any capability of being able to do the job yeah other than being a white man who yeah you know, either consciously or not mm -hmm. would associate with uh, the office of the presidency for right. obvious reasons and you know even the crazy thing about the hate obama got is you know a lot of my criticisms of him are from the left because he did so much conceding to try and like win those people over. The reason he probably mm -hmm. picked Joe Biden as his vice president to begin with was right. as he's his, his first concession <laughs> to yeah. moderates mm -hmm. and you know um, yeah, and then and then just going from there, all, all the compromises made along the way. Mm -hmm. The even during the um, Black Lives Matter um, protests when he had some Black Lives Matter leaders at the White House, or he gave a, a speech at um, the Dallas police officer's funeral after. Um, there was yep. a shooter that shot, mm -hmm. I think, six police officers, and, and Barack Obama spoke at their funeral. And I read it. I mean, it almost brought me to tears. It was like some of the most beautifully written. Um, and again, like throughout the speech, he's, he's constantly reinforcing that the police are the best of us and right. are, kind of straddling. You know, are here to protect us. And then yeah. just a little bit mm -hmm. through in, let's also consider, like, Mm -hmm. Again, just like these tiny breadcrumbs of like why there's criticism around um, the way black mm -hmm. people experience policing. And, you know, so I, I immediately think like this is a perfect speech. And then, you know, you just go online <laughs> or you talk to anybody who is, you know, moderate or to the right. And I just heard oh, like he's a socialist, like he's, you know, the worst person like you've <laughs> ever heard. Like, th like th th this speech was... Um, yeah, you know, some like disgusting. even though the speech was even, like he, like it, you it, said, he was speaking to both sides. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't even, yeah, even. I mean, yeah. he, you know, I think properly recognized he was at a funeral, and, and right. ninety nine percent was pure, mm -hmm. um, you know, speaking from the heart and honoring the right. the people that had died, and then, um, you know, just the one percent of it was, um just addressing the elephant in the room around the shooting. Right. And it was, yeah, the, the way that mm -hmm. it was perceived by so many people, then I was just like, okay, so like there's nothing he could do then um, short of, and, and honestly, one of my criticisms of him was trying too hard to win these people right. over. And it could be because it just felt like there's nothing, they're right. going to call you a socialist no matter what you do. Right. Even though, you know, his universal health care plan turned out to be, you know, mm -hmm. some weird private health insurance that, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm sure helped some small amount of people, but was nothing mm -hmm. close to what a lot of us mm -hmm. on the left really hoped for as a path to universal health care. Right. Um, 
but you know it's like no matter what you do they're going to call you a socialist or they're going to they're going to call you these things because it's not about policy for them it's about fighting this culture war and maintaining this caste system yes i said that uh you know with nice racism right <laughs> you know people that don't care will come out and basically say why they're saying what they're saying but a lot of the times it's color blindness you know what i mean it's like even with the, the um the war on drugs right if you read if you're reading like the actual words in these laws it's colorblind Right. There's no, like, black people getting this, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of hard, and you drive yourself crazy, you know, trying to uh, debate somebody who is adamant on, you know, just not understanding anything and just, you know, saying you're crazy. And it's kind of hard to, you know, debate because it's so colorblind. And like she said, it's so interwoven in our culture right. that, you know, you just it just is what it is. You know what I mean? So right. um, then you have to go into, like, you know, black people smoke crack at the time and white people smoke cocaine obviously there's a great disparity between the two you know sentencings between the two and blah blah, blah but there could still be like oh you're making stuff up you know what i mean so it's the color blindness is is wild like yeah, you know, and, and, and it's genius i, I mean at the same time <laughs> evil genius you know it's i don't think anyone doubts the fact that white people do drugs just as much as black people do but right. there's no fbi mm -hmm. or police Mm -hmm. operation setting up stings in white suburbs exactly looking for you know trying to pull over every mm -hmm. kid they find searching their cars and you know slapping these misdemeanors or jail time or um yeah even worse like these these trials that for people that can't afford a lawyer and then can't afford to pay bail can't afford right. to get this off the record and so th these things compound um but you know that kind of gets us into you know, what you thought about talking about, but we decided a little bit against was mm -hmm. like critical race theory, which gets turned into this big monster. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is literally just related to what you're talking about is finding ways that, um, for example, like a law that isn't racist in its, its writing mm -hmm. has different effects on different racial groups. Mm -hmm. And... You know, first of all, that's not being taught to kids in high school and shouldn't be because they can't. So much of that they can't understand. You yeah. Know, because it, I saw, you know, these like Fox News, they make these big uh, nightmares about they're teaching critical race theory to our kids. And it's like, no, critical race theory is like a college, like university master's. It's very PhD complex. Level. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like I said, I, I tried to listen to a, a real lecture on it. From, yeah. Like a university professor. I couldn't understand it because I didn't understand half the words she was saying. Right. Um. But but that that is what it's related to is mm -hmm. like yeah viewing um, how you know society and norms and laws have disparate racial effects um, that we don't account for as long as it's not in the uh, right the writing of the law. And this nice racism thing has been going on forever. Uh, if you look at certain abolitionists, didn't necessarily view black people as equals. Uh, they just didn't believe they just believe slavery is a little bit too harsh. Not that they were like, you know, on our level. Like, we just think that's a little bit too far, guys. We Maybe we should, you know. Or, you know, people look at the North, right? And be like, oh, they were so progressive. Right. When, you know, you, you might get eaten in a restaurant in the North, but they were there. This is a real story. 
you know, the waitress used to make a they used to make a thing out of smashing the glass after a black person had drunk drink out of it mm-hmm. to show, you know, because there's this thing like don't touch, you know, white parents used to scrub their kids hands if they shook hands with a um, with a black kid. In this book, there's a story of this kid who was the only black kid on a, on a little league baseball team. They won the championship and his coaches, probably not thinking, um, took them to a pool. Right. And this could. Race is so interwoven in our society. Me, I'm just thinking of how the fact that stereotypically black people don't mess with water like that. Um, this could this could be uh, th- this story could be um, a part of that. And uh, even going back to slavery, when you know slaves like, hey, I'll jump out this ship before I be somebody's slave. You know what I mean? So there used to be a thing to where you know it's laws against black people swimming in the same pool. As white people. So this kid, just imagine this. And it's kind of heartbreaking when you think of it. But imagine um, just winning a championship with your teammates, right? Um, To celebrate um, the championship, you guys go to a local pool. So as you and your teammates are entering the gate, you know, the lifeguards say, whoa, he can't come in here. And so your white coaches protest like, hey, man, come on, just let him in here. You know, Mm. it's not that big of a deal, blah, 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 blah. And so they was like, we can't do that, but he can sit outside the gate. So imagine you're watching your friends enjoy the pool and you have to sit outside the gate and watch this. And then, you know, the coaches keep pleading and the lifeguard says, "Okay, we'll allow him in the pool for a couple of minutes. But no white person could be in this pool. True story. This is true story. No white person could be in this pool while he's in the pool. So they make every parent. Coach mm-hmm. and white child get out of the pool. So this black kid, now I don't even think they let him get in the pool. He just walked or circled around the pool, and they told him, do not touch the water. Yeah. It's craziness. Yeah. You know what I mean? But most people don't know this. And I think school, schooling and education can do so much in shaping the young minds young minds and it's not even like yes you know kids at that age you know growing up or not you know then they can't fully comprehend critical race theory but what they can comprehend is um not only hearing about slaves and Martin Luther King when it comes to social studies or the history class because subconsciously for the white child and the black child um and you know every race in between if all you hear Growing up in your history class about black people is slavery and Martin Luther King subconsciously. That's how you're going to view black people as subordinate, lesser than, you know, slavery, struggle. That's what you're going to see them as. And as a black person, you can see yourself like that whenever so much brilliance that can be taught in, in, in when you cover black history in America but we choose to tell these half truths. You know, I'm I'm reading these books, and I'm just thinking about the stuff I learned in, so, in social studies, and and I'm and we you know we learned about all these compromises, right? All these compromises, compromises, to compromise that, and all of these compromises were centered around slavery. We learned about the Civil War in school. They told us it was about states' rights. It's literally about keeping black people enslaved. Right, yeah. And states so, rights to do what? Yeah, yeah, keep, yeah exactly. So. <laughs> It's, you know, they're telling these half-truths to make America look great. And they're also 
telling these stories about black people. And even in some textbooks, they said they call they didn't even call them slaves. They call them indentured servants. What? Right. And so if you keep pacifying history and telling half truths, you're doing a disservice. And we'll never like that quote said a reason America can't can't get past its history or racial history is because it doesn't teach its racial history. Right. I think um, well, as far as indentured servants, I mean, that was just a totally separate category offered to like, yeah. white Europeans. Yeah, yeah saying, exactly. Hey, if you work for five years, then we'll pay for your trip to America. Exactly. Um, but, you know, after that, not experiencing it, the kind of racial apartheid that mm-hmm. you know, then would exist in the country for the next century or and more. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I was losing my train of thought, getting lost in your uh, no, no, <laughs> your monologue. Yeah. Um, I think as far as um, yeah, teaching real history in schools, um, it's important. Not our our attention spans and like the time we have to think about these issues as adults feels like so little, mm-hmm. especially for again white liberals who you know it's 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 too much to to think about at one time. And so we get swept up in the culture war, Mm -hmm. like bullshit that happens on, you know, mainstream media or social media. Right. um, Because it's, that's what it's meant to do so that our politicians don't actually have to do anything (laughs) helpful for us as long as they get us. They're the bad team because they believe in whatever this bullshit is. And and they're the bad team because they believe in this rather than like, hey, what are we gonna do about healthcare or climate change or things like that? and so one of those things became, recently, for some reason, became critical race theory. Right. Even though critical race theory's been around for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, um, being taught, being like a cho- something you could learn in, in university. Um, but, you know, so, you know, if you turn on Fox News, they'll say they're teaching, you know, all white kids, you're racist, and all, everyone is either colonizer or oppressed, and they want you to hate America, and... One, like, they couldn't, like, further demonstrate how little they know about what critical race theory even means. But also, right. as I said, that's not what's being taught to kids because mm-hmm. it's, that's, that's an advanced level course. Critical theory in general is advanced level yeah, For studies. an adult. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, we're, we're talking about, like, common sense, like, let's teach real history to kids in schools because we are – we're so um, – our, our – propaganda sensors are so finely tuned when it comes to Chinese media or Russian media or Korean, North Korean media. Right. And yet we don't think about that ever happening to us. Whereas, you know, that's, of course it does, you know, that's every, Mm -hmm. I'm sure every country does that. And so it's, you know, everything that we learn in school is from the lens of America and more specifically from like the white, the white person, the white American through, um, through the centuries. And so, it's not about hating America or, again, like every white person like interrogating their own racism. It's <laughs> learn, just learning true history and understanding why things are the way they are today. Right. And, you know, you can't do that without understanding every level of. I mean, I know you or want to also teach like more like actual black excellence throughout the centuries yeah. that is often hidden, which is important too. But I, I'm like so interested in teaching like the specific things like our government has done and society has done 
yeah, that has too. resulted in the caste system that we have now. Right. Um, beyond just there, people are just making racisms over, mm-hmm. and people are making bad choices. And I really think that a lot of people don't really know. Like they know slavery, they know you know Jim Crow era, but they don't know like like you know the the housing discrepancies we were talking about or you know all the are like when black people did get loans they were predatory and you know they don't know yeah, the, any the of this Act, they don't GI know Bill any of this any of that yeah. they don't know how you know we look at one of the the new deal policies that were took the words right out of my mouth i was about to say that you know you look at all oh, the new deal was great it, right. but it, hey it did not include black people and People really don't know, you know what I mean? Because why would you have to know? It's not a part of your life. So I want to read this right quick. This right quick. This is out of Nice Racism by Robin D'Angelo. Um, she said, "I asked social justice consultant and author Anika Naila, a black and indigenous woman who identifies as a woman of the global majority, about her thoughts on white niceness." She brought uh, Constagno's observations to life in her reply, explaining that white nice functions as a kind of shield against being touched or moved moved in the race of right ra- in the face of racism a shield that actually made it more dangerous for her especially if you have direct power over any aspect of my life anika shared her lived experience and broke down the impact of white niceness from two directions when it is expected of her and when it comes at her she shared the following list with me um, this is when you want me to be nice as a black, as a black person, you, a white person would mean don't talk about race. Don't cause conflict, conflict. Don't say anything that might upset me or other white people I care about. Don't be direct. Don't tell me what you really think. Tell me I'm a good person. Smile. Be friendly. Don't cause me to feel anything. Don't pressure me to take action or own something I did. Don't defend yourself against my racism, lest you be seen as a bitter angry person don't name my racism and when you're being nice as a white person you believe that means you can't possibly be racist set me up as the mean black person if i call you on your racism smile as a shield against genuine vulnerability assume that your whiteness slash white space is comfortable for me are just being quote-unquote professional and following the quote-unquote rules because quote-unquote nice people don't make waves Think it's not fair that I'm not being nice back. You've been, uh, you included me. Why am I not granting you the benefit of the doubt that you are not racist? Justify not interrupting racism because you didn't want to hurt another white person's feelings at the expense of my feelings. Leave me to take risk and be vulnerable. We'll objectively watch from a quote unquote nice distance to learn what you and your people are feeling. Anika sees white niceness in the face of racism as a form of the plantation relationship. During the enslavement of Africans, white people didn't have to be nice. Black people, of course, did, but no pretense of niceness was needed on the part of white people. Today, that pretense is necessary to some degree, especially in order to qualify as a white progressive. But that doesn't mean that anti-blackness isn't simmering just below the surface, and black people are still required to be nice or risk punishment. Consider the case of a white woman calling the police when a group of black Airbnb guests did not behave nicely toward her. As they checked out and left the home, dragging luggage to their car, they were met by seven police cars and told to put their hands in the air. They tried to explain to the officers that they were renting 
and Airbnb, but the officers didn't believe officers didn't believe them and detained them for up to 45 minutes. Attorneys for the guest said a neighbor called authorities because they didn't return her wave or smile at her. As this story illustrates, the white smile is not without strings. It comes with an entitled expectation that there will be acknowledgement and gratitude for the white, quote unquote, nod of approval. I am all for niceness in general. I don't enjoy mean people and I am not advocating for white people to be unfriendly. But niceness is not anti-racism. Niceness does not in indicate a lack of racism and it's not the solution to racism, nor does a culture of niceness indicate that racism is not present in the environment. The critique here is directed at white progressives who think that niceness means that they hold no racism and that it conveys that same meaning to others. Given that niceness is not a neutral, objective term, we might also reflect on what qualifies as not nice in the context of challenging racism. Yeah. Yeah, that's heavy. Um, <laughs> we have a minute for closing thoughts. Go ahead. I keep getting, I'm, in, I'm entranced by your reading. And no, no, it's, you're, you're digesting it, yeah. which is I want you people at home to do the same. Just take in. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, one important thing that I mean, she talks about, but I've, I've thought as well, and something that um, there's this, um, he's a former um, Harvard professor, uh, Dr. Cornell West. I yes. don't know if you've heard him speak. Brilliant um, man. Brilliant. Yes. And the way he like speaks to you and brings you into mm -hmm. the conversation, the way, I, I mean, I just love how he calls everybody brother right. and sister. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I think that a lot of that also speaks to the way that Robin talks about what white people lose in this caste system. Even if we are higher up in the caste system, how much we actually lose by maintaining the system right. to begin with. Because um, even if they're not impossible barriers, there are still like having these barriers in society to feeling this genuine connection to everyone around us including our black brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. or, um, again, even other, like, white Americans who may not be in our caste. Mm -hmm. or, um, and, again, the, the, I guess, spiritual and emotional and, um, you know, every, every other kind of benefit you could, you could imagine by by maintaining the society in which not everybody has the same level of freedom to self-actualization and to fully express their talents and creativity and be themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when, when this is maintained, it's, it puts up that barrier. And, you know, as I mentioned, like going into what feels like black spaces versus white spaces and mm -hmm. how, um, you know, the, this, this cloud of, um, this invisible caste system or, or, or racism, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's operating in all of us all the time. And so it's hard to get past that to achieve, you know, now, you know, just by luck, mm -hmm. you know, now, you know, five, 10 of my absolute best friends who I've spent probably the happiest moments of my life with are all black Americans who, you know, it's, you know, it couldn't have happened maybe 30 years ago and, you know, it's, it's still 
something that there there's barriers for today in that I'm losing my train of thought. Let's cut this whole bit out. <laughs> <laughs> now you good. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to articulate it. it it's yeah. something that I think about a lot. Um and how much we lose uh, emotionally in, in not creating, you know, a better society in which everybody's free to, um, you know, fully, um, you know, have one, have their needs met, but also express themselves to their, without being constrained by these, um, this n- niceness protocols that you just read off. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, like having to worry about, like, is he going to call the police on me because I don't look like I belong on this Google campus? Right. <laughs> um, I think that's my closing thoughts for now. I'll, I'll save the rest for parts three, four, and five. All right. So to just encapsulate uh, what you just described, um, Fannie Lou Hamer said in eight words, um, no one is free until everyone is free. Um, so guys, thank you for listening. Um, look, I know I can only imagine, uh, you know, for a white person sitting here listening to all this, it might be kind of uh, difficult to take in. But understand if you're really about the work of, you know, progressing society, um, being an ally for your for your black friends, co-workers, employees, etc. Um, these things are just vital, you know, in order for us to grow in life, period. But but specifically to this topic, you have to get uncomfortable. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to be uncomfortable because that's the only way that you will grow in life and also in this space. And lastly, I want to uh, get these books. Um, these it's a lot of books. For, uh, I'll be when this episode comes out, I'll be putting these books and some other books that I think are required reading, inclu- including uh, one by Mr. Cornell West. On my book club page, um, just get these books. Nice Racism by Rama D'Angelo. Um, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, you know, if you don't necessarily like reading, you know, get the audio book or something. I'll watch some YouTube videos. You know, just do something. <laughs> and just, uh, you know, let's get the work. You know, I, I, I'm very transparent. I've been very transparent in both of these episodes. But understand that it's just, you know, me, uh, you know, telling the truth and doing what I think is necessary to move the conversation forward with the platform that I have. Garrett, thank you once again um, for coming on. And uh, yeah, we're out. Peace.